For those of you who don't know me, I'm Robert Archambeau from the English Department, and I am stunned to be welcoming you to the 11th Lake Forest College Literary Festival. Davis. Davis Schneiderman, my colleague in English in the front row, is applauding because he remembers when we started planning this, which is more than 11 years ago, it took a couple of years to get it going, he remembers that I had a long, lamentable, shaggy ponytail and that he dressed like a reject from the Beastie Boys. But now we're respectable and we wear jackets. I'm the um, fifth Beastie Boy, actually. <laughs> um, anyway, I want to remind you of a few of the upcoming events. Um, this is the second event. We had a wonderful reading from Christopher Perez earlier this evening. Uh, tomorrow, uh, there will be a, a reading in the afternoon by students involved in Tusitala, our literary magazine. On Wednesday, Regina Taylor, a playwright and a television star, will have two events. One, a screening of her new show on the USA Network, and one, a staged reading of a uh, play of hers. On Thursday, we'll have our own open mic uh, with mystery readers. Uh, and on Friday, uh, the English department will have, in Carnegie Hall, a tribute to the late uh, American Poet Laureate Philip Levine, Benjamin Golubov, my colleague and chair of the English department, said, be sure to tell them there will be free pizza at that event. You're notified. Uh, but tonight, uh, I'm very privileged to welcome uh, Maxine Chernoff, uh, from whom you're about to hear. Uh, I was terrified earlier uh, that when she flew in yesterday from San Francisco uh, and saw this beautiful Chicago spring, that she would wilt and cower in the fetal position in her room and be unable to emerge. And then I remembered, she is a Chicagoan, born and raised in Chicago, which reminded me of a quote from arguably Chicago's greatest novelist, Saul Bellow, and arguably his greatest character, Augie March, who says at the beginning of the novel, Augie March, I am an American Chicago-born, Chicago, that somber city, and I go at things as I have taught myself freestyle and will make the record in my own way. I have a segue. <clears throat> as a writer, Maxine Chernoff has gone at things so as to make the record in her own way. She is a novelist with two novels to her credit. She is a short story writer with three titles uh, to her credit. And she is above all a poet, uh, the author of, I counted, 13 books of poetry. Uh, and she'll be reading us her poetry tonight. She's also a translator of uh, Helderman, among others. Uh, and she edits, along with her husband, the writer Paul Hoover, New American Writing, which has been one of the most exciting and interesting magazines in American literature for a long time. So she's had, you know, a half a dozen distinguished literary careers, uh, each more distinguished than the last. And it is a great pleasure and privilege to have her here uh, please join me in welcoming her here tonight. So, yeah, a little, a little snow doesn't scare me. Do you hear? Is this okay? Yeah. Yeah. A little snow doesn't scare me because I was here for more than half my life, so I had my my share of snow. And I remember one winter, I don't remember which it was, where you couldn't even find your car under the snow for weeks. We lived in Rogers Park, and we would walk to Morse Avenue, um, like above the height of the park on snow. So, this isn't scary at all. So thank you for having me here. Um, I'm going to read um, from a selection of my poetry, starting um, 
Start with a, a poem that is kind of a poetics, talking about what the poem should do. Then reading from some um, a very early poem because it's fun to read something you wrote when you were 27, when you're not close to that age anymore. Um, and then reading from some more um, contemporary things that I've written. So thank you again for having us. So a, a magazine asked for people to write um, a poem about what poems should do, called um, The Poem's Work. And so this is called The Work of the Poem, and it has, it has a setting that you'll hear in a minute. The Work of the Poem. The Work of the Poem is the Work of the Moment, 2.45 p.m., January 20th, 2014, on which a life is celebrated and others are born and die as I write this sentence. There is the small hum of a machine that runs on the melted bones of dinosaurs and the smell of cut vegetation. There is the taste of salt on my knuckle and glaciers melting and fires in the south of my state. There are circumstances, there are feelings. There are connections to be made about memes and twerks and a YouTube version of Johnny Cash at San Quentin Prison when all the prisoners were white. The poem lives now and in retrospect. The poem lives in an empire of great cruelty and wealth, where the average citizen is punished daily and not given what he, she needs. Give us today our gluten-free bread. Wealth is concentrated in the top 1%, and the poem knows this too. The poem knows that drones hit targets as we speak. The poem knows that the last bee in the garden has its singular existence as it approaches the lily and as part of a community whose existence is threatened by a plague and pesticides, and yet it cannot present its own case to the world. Hence, Emily Dickinson. That is the work of the poem, to give voice to itself, to hold within itself the deep notions of the moment and the bewilderment of their vastness. The poem's attention is also the poem's ignorance. The poem is ignorant and beyond unkind to everything it omits. The poem cannot fulfill its duties of repairing the broken world all around it. The poem struggles to contain itself. The poem does not bleed to death or get crushed by an army. The poem is a negotiation. The poem sucks the nectar and returns to its hive. I'm going to read a poem that I wrote when my daughter was four, and my daughter's 38 now, so it was a while ago. I was younger. So is she. And in it, I call her a foolish girl. And when she first heard me read this poem, she kicked me <laughs> for calling her a foolish girl. Sado Voce. Although she's only four, my daughter knows Spanish. Say Blanco, she demands. Say Negro. Words are the finest toys, she tells me, with eyes that are arrows. My husband speaks with the virtuosity of a drummer. Suspiration, humidor, revivify. Beautiful words float upwards like jets sowing clouds. If my cat could only speak, it would be in a shrill nasal French I wouldn't understand. Languages wash over me, scratched on cold telephone booths, tapped in window panes. I am sorry to admit that I am inventing yet another in the dark, furtively, as one imagines an obscene old kiss. Just as I am thinking about it, my daughter shouts, Verde, Verde. She thinks so much depends on it, palm trees, parsley, dollar bills, that I can't disappoint her. Foolish girl, I think, locking up my new language, then barely dissolves 
naked and bloodless as the busy air. So that was a prose poem, and in the course of my history, I left the prose poem for a long time. I wrote fiction, and when I came back to poetry, I didn't write prose poems until very recently. So I'm going to read a few things that aren't prose poems. Then I'm going to read a big swath of my um, book here, which, which is a book of prose poems again, and tell you a little about it. So this is from a book called The Turning, and it's kind of a list poem um, called As Make the Angels Weep. It starts with a quote from a man named Felipe Hernandez Armesto, who said Boethius was a victim of what would now be called future shock. As Make the Angels Weep. When the God image enters the man image, when champagne is poured and the boat embarks on its journey, when truth is buried in the graveyard of certainty, when the entrance is a grave and an exit from the womb, when pure reason opposes practical reason, when I do this replaces I do that, when the two shepherds are met by the village musician, when the chanter's art perishes and tea gets poured regularly, when rappers revolutionize the use of the drum machine, when the lapis blames the stone, when spirit becomes a religion, when monochrome replaces landscape, when certainty becomes reality, when open and direct means closed and opaque, when immortality flees the world, when celebrity death replaces news of war, when we historicize our futures, when we survive our disappearances, when children are mistaken for ghosts, when science moves to a green tower, when capture means in fashion, when death falls in love with stillness, when murder chastises history. Okay, and then this little book um, published by Amidon, um, I'll read two poems in, um, and one of them is, this is my kind of poem to Dick Cheney, but not in a nice way. <laughs> called The News. It could be to other people, too. It, the, the, the category suits a lot of people, but when I wrote it, it was to him. <laughs> the News. The inhuman among us want to sing as others. They have a sacred place constructed of their crimes that surely corresponds to something in the world. Their subtle lack of grace makes it strange and rich, singing accusations in a pure contralto which almost sounds like truth, dressed up as a prince, or darkness curling under an open, well-lit door. And then this other poem kind of is a, a little small attack on memory and how, you know, writers, you know, write from memory, but there's other things to write from too. Um, this is called There Will Be Consequences. Memory's edge is too demanding, asks for reaching when it only wants models. Show me a list, memory says. You reveal cardboard scenery, a sheriff's badge, and slippery stones. Anything, please, for memory's sake. A few spare pigeons, a haunted zoo. Your field of vision seems to be failing. You prop it up with ambition. In its circumference, there are blackbirds. Your childhood wants to have a party. Your attendance is required. You'll conjure it up, some glass begonias, 
Cameras, please, memory says. That's about memory being a bully, I guess. And one more from here. Um, it's just a poem about language. Um, it was in the nation when they, just before they stopped publishing poems, and I hope this wasn't the reason why they stopped publishing <laughs> They published this poem, and I was excited to have a poem in the nation, called The Language. A field of black sheep who know church Latin. A shipyard of vessels all named sentence. A tangle of words in a basket of laundry. A night like no other. Blackbirds falling like endings. A gift unrecognized by grace. A barrel, only a barrel, at the Stoics Hotel. They stay for years, getting lost in the language. And then I wrote this book called Without, which our skinny, skinny, skinny poems, all that begin um, with a title with the word without in it. So it's imagining the absence of something each time. Um, so without a curtain, without truth, without recognition, without a narrator. Um, so I'll read two of these. I'll read without a narrator, and then I'm going to read them without sympathy. Without a narrator. Mr. and Mrs. History, hand in hand, enact the silence of alternate views. Consolation shivers, time dispossessed, patience rewritten on unchristened ground. In the pageant, the death of lovers, disincarnation in childless space. And um, this other one, I shall read two more. Um, this one's about Frankenstein, about the, the, um, the Frankenstein novel, Mary Shelley's novel. Um, starts with a quote from my former dean, Paul Sherwin, um, who wrote about it. It says, the creature is so uncannily feared that it cannot be seen. We have a monster who wears white. His eyes are real and shine like bones. If whiteness is sickness, he is taken, swallowed whole. A subtle monster whom people notice only in passing. His gifts are real but unwelcome. We name our monsters thus, coax meaning out. It spills and wanders, also white, radioactive under scrutiny. So the, um, the what? The, the unnameable sense of, of, monster, of being a monster and the, um, the unpointed effect of it. And this is without sympathy. As I was writing this book, I thought of the fact that um, for everything you write, you don't write something else. So you're leaving out all these things. And so this is kind of an apology for all the things you leave out when you write. Without sympathy. Who was I in my presumptuous smallness to ignore the many dead whose hands reached as mine, pale and asking, rich and figured, under their loads of light or dark, their liquid stones of small intoxications, their butterfly viewing, their salt mining, their love of basalt, their dark corners where words told them to go there and then here, to take up their toils and lay them down and curl around someone they loved or someone they only liked. They did everything wrong. Their hatreds were petty. They broke plates. Their stories are not mine. Their photos by strangers whose eyes are bluer than a filament of gaslight, who intends no harm. I am sorry for my slights of everyone, 
my unturned cheek when they called. Will you forgive my sudden and vast catalog of prayers and charms, sparrows and dust motes, bees and ready doves? I am only trying harder to be what light calls itself when it enters a room full of sorrows. So that's that project, and there are about 40-something of those. And um, when I finished that project, I wanted to do something way different, and also my mood was way different. I was writing this when I was in kind of a not very good place in terms of my life, in terms of a relationship, and then um, things got better and kind of blossomed. And what I did with that emotionally, because I mean, I never write like, say, Sharon Olds, where you know exactly what's happening in her life. You don't ever know what's really happening in my life. But, but it does, of course, influence how you choose to write. So these poems are, are vast and expansive. And what I was playing with here um, wasn't necessarily going back to prose poems, which I ended up doing, but writing poems with the longest sentences I could write. And writing poems with the longest sentences I could write pushed me back into writing prose poems. So I was, it, it was an experiment that, in a way, surprised me. But I was, I was happy with its outcome. I, I didn't, I didn't not want to write prose poems, but I didn't know I could anymore. Um, so this first one, if you're an English major, um, you've probably read or will read "To the White House," and this is a poem about "To the White House," called "A House in Summer." Starts with a quote from Eric Auerbach, who said Virginia Woolf wrote this paragraph in which a woman wonders when her son will grow taller, when the weather will clear and her husband stop throwing his negative shadow on clocks and lamps and objects as they are. Will it grow lighter despite his darkness, her eyes dry, though they are mostly dry, despite the feeling of tears welling up as she wishes for the boy to have more light? Will the room, nature's repository of conical shells and tidy driftwood, and small and radiant glass beads smothered for centuries by water's vague intentions have something to say about the figures that come and go, the careless boy, unhappy man and woman whose demeanor makes the room glow with the distinct light of sick rooms, though no one yet is ill, but there is the care and caution one associates with grief. When shutters break loose and the wind does its work, and the people who've shined with the moment's surprises and disappointments and failures to love quite well enough have left the room? Will the wind acknowledge their vivid passing on sofas and love seats where sand is ingrained in scallop patterns of fabric woven to resemble teardrop-shaped leaves? Will photos teeter on walls in their dampened frames or simply be stacked in boxes for relatives to take to a coach house? overlooking a stand of elms on a narrow hill that deflects the wind, where someday a woman opens the box in front of her grandson who asks, without much concern, to pass the day, who were these people? Did you know them? And the woman, because she is sentimental but cautious with her emotions, will say with conviction, I hear they were a family who summered at the beach, who lost their mother, who thought many things and then forgot them, who loved as well as they might, as I love you, she will tell her grandson, though not in words. She will think these words as she looks at her, as he looks at her, without, know why, without knowing why her answer takes so long. And when it does come, seems to acknowledge some deep sorrow of inheritance neither can understand. If this is a book, as most, most things turn out to be, 
the woman will have read it twice. Once when she was young herself, a reader whose eyes grew teary for Mrs. Ramsey, and all the love in the world that gathers in unmapped corners where someone comes to stand for no good reason. And then again when she is older and knows the pleasure of overhearing in her own voice things she might have said to calm herself and soothe a boy. And um, I did read it when I was younger and older. It's a real different experience reading things when you're a kid and an older, older kid. Um, it's interesting. It's strange because it's a different phenomenon. Um, same with movies. I remember like when I was really young, watching Last Tango in Paris, and when I was way older, watching it again, and the first time thinking it was like this like kind of hot love story, and when I was older, thinking this is like the most tragic movie I've ever seen. <laughs> um, so you miss a lot sometimes, <laughs> or you just see it differently. Um, so I taught with a woman named Stacy Doris, who was a wonderful poet who died too young um, about three years ago, and we were very, very good friends. Um, and this is, it's really a poem about her negotiating the end of her life and me negotiating it with her. Um, and we hung out a lot, we did things, and she was, you know, funny and full of life to the end. So it's not really, you know, a miserable poem. It's a poem kind of about celebrating how someone continues to live, called Construction. Starts with a quote from Wallace Stegner. Then the air was fully of wings. The doves came down out of the sunny blue like angels in a painting. You, and, and she was going through like massive chemotherapy. And that's how it starts, basically. You try to build it with scarves and wigs, the hair of women from shrines in India, cut for purity and sold for profit. You cut your nails, make sure you are clean enough, you take the scrupulous bath so you are ready for the lords of chemicals, alcohol, tubes. This is the oblation, the vow not to outlast but to serve, to compensate as best you can for its eventual failure. Bargains are different. You play tricks, crossing the road coolly in front of the barrel of the truck. Let him dare rob you with a different end. Punch lines abound, how she was hit by a garbage truck, a potato truck, at the side of a friend helping her shop that day, they were sharing an egg roll. You laugh outrageously, but not with outrage, when the impossibly beautiful movie does not end as it should, but just accrues endings. No editor, no discipline, allegory of a life, everyone's too, this is general. So many scenes unlit, words mumbled on tape, false starts, abrupt containments. You are making a collection of homely wisdom offered like cakes at a banquet. You are a snob about offerings. So much is trivial, small as an ant crawling with a large leaf bent leftward. The braveness, the unfairness, all the ways in Tibet and Peru and with eagles or crows they topple the body to provide something more substantial than your own grief for yourself. You, the best friend you've ever had the one who knows your lies and quibbles and times you really, really didn't mean it. You even outwitted yourself. How you delayed because there was something more tinged with promise, more, more wrapped with danger that drew you off course. You who threw away charts and itineraries and maps. You who said no and no thank you at best. You have no menu. You have this with the cube for a day, rectangle for a week, 
the larger square of the month that marks a time for flags, a day for fathers, a festival in a South Asian atoll, and a calendar whose photo of mountains that seem celestial are merely granite and water condensed into snow. You have minutes of still, feeling, of still being yourself, if shadow is you. If your hand holds a lime green glass and takes a long sip, you feel deep in your throat. It's finally not about what it's finally not about you, but what others will say, what they whisper about the self that you weren't, all the same, really. You were quiet or self-composed, cheerful or foolishly so, alert till the end or unfeeling as ice. You are elsewhere, double, halved, and zeroed. Maybe you can report by letter or note or an oddly voiced message that you are with yourself elsewhere or nowhere. You have what you need not pinned to a board in a small room without windows, or sewn on a jacket, not on a booklet with dates and a line and a face with your own flaming eyes and longish chin, no harm meant in the modesty of missing, in the simply lucid sense of being here, but also unseen. This is called evidence. It starts with a quote from Montaigne. To philosophize is to learn how to die. Of houses empty or noticed, to rooms whose lamps have left their light behind, ancient after time has landed in the breach of its excess, dropped there as if a package fell from the arms of a woman. Of glasses once filled whose essence is left in a stain that looks clear in most light but carries a tinge of its own erasure, when she notices it late the night after he is asleep. Of windows whose eyes are shut to the diversions of their intended gazers, birds passing on their sheer migration over oceans filled with brine. Of gardens where he sat or she sat amid the trickery of a season and its aftermath, patchy on the lawn and patchy in the sky, gray and listless for a time before respecting the progress of feeling as it overtakes the geography of plants. Of reasons which fill a space but not adequately, which stretch like deserts between needs vocalized or calmed, written or whispered, answered or forgotten by the time an answer is prepared. Of books filled with language that is never proper to the moment but serves as a repository of the possible, though the possible is not enough, as a tent is never enough in a storm of eyes that fill with knowing or restless asking or a glance that means retreat or surrender or that a village lies in waste, a life is lost, small as a child's attempt to catch her, a mote of dust above his bed in moonlight from a gibbous moon, of melodies whose notes contain the promise of an answer as if music is an answer or patience a virtue or love an antidote. Okay, this is um, this is a poem about drones and not like the good ones that like help you sell your house when you want an overhead view or um, you play with on Sundays, but the kinds that the government is using to um, to randomly, not randomly, decidedly um, kill people and sometimes take people with them who they don't even mean to kill. Um, so that's happening, and this is what the poem's about, and it starts with a quote, but it's an unattributed quote because it's just from some article. Um, 
Operators fly the planes from air-conditioned trailers thousands of miles from the war zone. Porch lights appear. It is 1962 when the woman wearing a pink chemise retrieves the newspaper from her lawn. We settle on news of our day, how video games have turned deadly, how children have learned the ready skills of removal. A book's pages blow from middle to end to beginning. Nothing passes or ends. Nothing claims the text's attention. Words float upward, launched by hand. The usual mixed with the strange is the stuff of dreams, the stuff of waking to distinction sharp, or sharp as paper, soft as candles. Far beyond shadows, a light whose origin is a mystery. A new sense of the word means death, sudden as music. Maps suggest the land has no boundaries, countries no borders. Objects of interest appear on a grid. Men and women, cattle, and a stray goat with stone-colored eyes. The ache of the past connects to the present, how doorbells used to ring and strangers call. Fear was small and hovered on lips. Olives floated listlessly in drinks as people whispered local scandal in front rooms blue with information. Surgeons of excision, men enact death's plans. Its subtlety knows no limits. Outmanned and outmaneuvered, we practice remembering. Okay. Um, these couple are dream poems. Um, they're like dreams. They weren't really dreams, but they're like dreams. And one of them doesn't have a title, but it begins with a quote from Gaston Bachelard, For every appetite there is a world. You started the movie with Maud Gone and Socrates and Juliet and a flock of sparrows that were a fixed point, like the spire of a cathedral, but made of feathers. You were naked and clothed and wearing nothing visible, except when you sat or stood or began to speak. And then the words were made of black yarn, and your fingers held them as in an outline of reverie. You were there and not there, and when I partially held you, the idea of you faded into a hint of light tinged by a window in the westernmost sky. And under that window, your face was vaguer and therefore more intimate in its shadowed complexity. If water is proof of thirst and knowledge a satisfied hour with a book, then stories end as they begin at the height of invention without a suffix of time and its pressures. You start in the movie and certain necessities fled like figures animated by their own recognition. That's kind of a love poem, I think. I guess. This is called Knowing. It starts with a uh, quote from Paul Ricoeur, the philosopher. A secret dream of emulating the cartographer or the diamond cutter animates the historical enterprise. You're here on a couch, pillows fluff, dreaming in Latin. You're in a tablet carved on a mountain and given to men whose ears fill with ontology. You're near a stream whose source is the next cogency for a traveler stunned as Holderlin trying to remember his name. And Holderlin was a poet who, who went mad and wrote under different names. You're in the dream in which his hands are yours and conclusions marked by sighs and breathing. You are nowhere, a signal or code meant to sweep you under a wave or a cloud or a whispered veil of induction. 
The French Revolution began without you and ended the same. You are not needed in this chapter in which the king's clothes are described as raiment or ermine cloak. If you are required by time and its minions, you will receive notice as spiders when the dew shakes a web and the world blinks to attention. So now I'm going to read a few poems from my brand new manuscript, not so brand new, but my two-year-old manuscript um, that I'm still working on. I'm going to check the time too, so I'm not holding you. Am I holding you too long? No, I'm good. Started at 7.30, okay. So um, that's not my new manuscript. <laughs> this is my new manuscript. Um, about five or six poems from this, and then we'll have time to talk if you want to talk. If you don't want to talk, you don't have to. Um, yeah, that's where I started. My markers are all falling off. Okay, this is called Pilgrim. And when you live in San Francisco area, like, you know, spring comes, spring comes obnoxiously early compared to Chicago. So, um, Jasmine is really nice, but when it's right next to your house, it's really stinky. And um, I have really stinky jasmine all over the place, and I think I end up writing about that a lot, but it's not actually in here. It's just this thing called a green pilgrim, but it's the jasmine. And it makes, I think I'm allergic to jasmine, maybe. Good reason to move back here. Um, starts with a quote from Ann Porter called, Give praise with a rippling speech, pilgrim. A green pilgrim, tendrils reaching beyond the fence, as words restrain the meaning from the holy chorus of bells. Pages fill with sounds unutterable, while children lost in trees' thicknesses impenetrable as light assist your tactics of escape. You form a sentence to bridge a gap, offer prayers in a vacant store. No higher being or lower remedy to hold what is not said in a moment reckoned as instance, to see the dark winter twigs as portents Bird song is motive. You are filled and empty, words finding you in the gloaming and lulling you to sleep, where alphabets encounter stranger plots, twisted truths, a face you love stripped by some grief. Grief, too, a tendril, reaching its soft feathers toward a branch, holding its bitter wants and reborn sorrows tightly as the world. This is called Gaze. And I was writing a series of poems um, based on um, work of a film summutician um, and um, the idea of the gaze and who is looking at whom is important in that work. And so this is, is kind of based on that or, or takes off from there. Gaze starts with a quote from um, the fiction writer Jeanette Winterson. The earliest pilgrims shared a cathedral for a heart. Wanting to be the camera for your gaze I made myself a candle and a view, a wish and furtive trees just to the right of where the photo failed to show my face. The window dressed in black was lifted like a carpet toward the sky, and feathers blinked and swarmed around a body meant to signal flight. The house arrayed for morning was too full of ghosts and glass to feel the ancient plight of floorboards. Harsh light filled the closet with austerity, hatched from our misgivings. Absent of words, pages were relief from hasty, moonlit vows. The world, once beaded with desire, is milk white. Moths, torn from paper, get thrown into the fray.
This is a poem about, okay, so in conjunctions has these issues where they have a theme, and then you have, you send poems for the theme, and I always want to be in it, so I want this to be in conjunctions, and they took it. And I think it's not one of my best poems, but it's, it's one of my most um, clear poems, I think. One of my easiest poems, I think. Um, and it's a poem that's really about Ingmar Bergman movies, so it's a, it's a catalog in a way. It's called Told. Um, starts with the quote, but that's another story, and that's a quote from Ray Ragosto. Here stands Jules without his gym. There an old man weeping for his wild fruit. An innocent daughter has gone to the woods where the story encloses her ultimate day. You hold a spoon, its glacier of salt, a loaf of bread, its mushroom cap top, and he is with her at the blue beach house where only silence enters that space. The heart to a book that nothing escapes, not even the dust on the frontispiece. He won't read, or the yarn that was destined to be a hat. Still, you know the tragic outcome. Haven't you read it in a book? Um, so two more poems, I think, and then we'll have questions if you want. This is called Need. It begins with a quote from John Ashbery, always the quaking of relief. Need. In a swamp, the mangroves shade the nest of eggs blue as your eyes, which know the sensory, sensory sorrow as light knows the drift of a feather through turbulent air. You whose vows evaporate like mist from an ocean, where starfish and algae feel the touch of an invisible poison, in water's slow retreat of grace, and blueness is reflection of a steepled, latticed sky. Trellised world built of words which plead in low tones for a window to hold absence, whose ledger fills with longing, with threads and feathers of birds, whose beaks crush certain berries in their ripeness, this small economy of need. And um, the last poem I'll read is, starts with a quote from the semiotician who I'm working with in this book, and many poems, not many, any I've read till now, but his name is Christian Metz. And what I was trying to do in a lot of these poems is to disagree with him. So he says something about film that I disagree with uh, in terms of um, the world of poetry. So this pub's called Event, and it begins with his quote, an event must in some way end before its narration can begin. Um, and I don't think in poems it works that way. So I set out to show that. Not to prove it, but to show it. Event. And then doves and the thrush in the late afternoon of the swallow under the bridge, and the fathoms of sleep and the hollows of dialogue aspiring to contain the rich facts of what didn't happen when it seemed to have, and then a disquisition on the luster of windows in the morning when a psalm is read before lightning strikes the spire of a tall church in the city of your birth, and then centuries of robes of satin or black and vespers or prayer on cold granite, or at a wall where guards stand with AK-47s, and ghosts witness their attempts with sorrow unlike human sorrow, which is a stream that evaporates when language interrupts its flow. And the ministry of a quiet voice, when what is needed is a bell, or a glass filled to a certain level, and made to vibrate with a spoon. And before this ending, another ending. And after that, another. And no agreement between parties as to whether the story is over, 
or this is a respite between exhaustion and pleading. And the irises shallowly covered in dirt emerge purple in spring, whirl without end, as words are endless, sending their tendrils toward the next refrain. Okay, thank you. Evaluate how I'm doing. Okay, so questions about me drinking water. <laughs> this is a small question. Questions or comments, buddy, of the stuff I just read or about writing poetry or about being old or whatever you want to say? Yes. Why do you publish your poetry? Why do I publish my poetry? Wow, what a question. Um, it's become a habit, I guess. <laughs> um, I set out to be a poet, and when you set out to be a poet, what you hope to do is to publish your poetry. And when you publish your poetry, you hope that people will read it and appreciate it or find value in it or find a way to find their own voice and your voice in a way and, and to work off of it or toward it or against it um, and have some kind of dialogue of a poetic nature you know, with other people who are mainly poets, because after all, poets mainly write for other poets, it seems. So I guess I write my poetry to be part of a community of poets who are reading and writing poetry. Yes? Um, what are some of your favorite poets? There's so many. Um, so older poets like Emily Dickinson is really important to me. And I like the romantic poets. I like Keats and Coleridge and Shelley, particularly, of that group. Um, Newer poets are harder because I like zillions of newer poets. I like um, I like Christopher's teacher and Lauterbach very much. Um, I like um, I like Stacy Doris, who I taught with very much. It's a wonderful, interesting, lively poet to read if you're a younger poet. I think um, people as various as Robert Greene and Charles Simic are poets by poetry, and then a lot of prose poets like um, Julio Cortazar and Clarice Spector. Um, lots and lots of people like that, Apollinaire, um, um, Baudelaire, all those kind of people. Um, the early founders of, of kind of Rampol, people who wrote early types of prose poems and things similar to prose poems. Um, I very much like some of, you know, I like some of almost everyone's poems, but you know, like Ezra Pound's Cantos, for instance, although he wasn't a very nice man, but some of his Cantos are wonderful. Um, so many. So it's hard to it's hard to say who I, you know, really really like. This week, this year, I was very impressed by Claudia Rankine's book Citizen. Um, very very strong book, and I Fred Moten's new book that also did very well this year. Um, are strong books by African American poets who I, I like very much. Um, I like a lot of the Latin American poets, particularly um, Cesar Vallejo's. Very high on my list. That's a good range, I think. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. I really enjoy, and have for a long time, the quotes that you put at the beginning of so many of your poems. Yeah. I, I wonder if you could tell me, do they come first or do they come last? They usually come first, but if I'm cheating, they come last. <laughs> I, I usually try to find something. You know, part of my method lately for the last couple books is finding a quote and then writing a poem. So. Um, when it's going well, that, that voila is what happens. But sometimes um, I am in want of a quote. Um, 
and I find it later, but I do kind of think that's cheating. Um, so often when I'm working, you know, unlike most, you know, I'm sitting at a desk with a computer, but I also have actual stacks of really book, real books there, not just, I don't just Google things, you know, for, for finding quotes, I'm usually um, invested in reading something. So I was reading Christian Metz, kind of, um, really in a way to annoy me about, um, here's what happened, the story is, my son went to screenwriting school, and screenwriting school is so different from be, learning to become a poet, say, or a fiction writer, because everything's by committee. You know, he had to submit his ideas to the whole group, and they would say, you have permission to write that screenplay or you don't. And I thought that was so strange um, that I ended up reading film theory, um, kind of because I was aggravated about that. And Christian Metz was particularly annoying to me again and again about his rules about what, um, what film does and must do. So, um, so in his case, it was almost out of vengeance. <laughs> but more often, it's out of inspiration. <laughs> And that usually starts a poem for me lately. Yes? So you gave us some sense of the different phases of when you were writing these books, the kind of exuberance of some of the poems or the expansiveness. Mm -hmm. But I'm wondering, aside from content, if you can briefly characterize, if at all, your po how your poetic ideas have changed from earlier mm -hmm. in your career yeah. to later on. Okay. Philosophy, ideology. Right. So this is, you know, we're talking about like 40 years of writing now. 100 years of solitude, right? <laughs> um, so when I was a little girl poet, and I was, it was the, early, it was the 70s, um, I was like in my 20, early 20s and started writing. Um, it seemed to me, it, it, not, because, not because it was of any virtue, it seemed to me. You know, just what the choices we make are often quite arbitrary. So my quite arbitrary choice when I was very young um, was that line breaks didn't mean a lot to me and that um, I seemed to have a mind and an eye for image that worked better if I wrote prose poems. So I sought out people writing prose poems in the early 70s who were mainly um, you know, not American prose poets because there wasn't a lot of American post prose poetry around, but a lot of the Latin American poets and the French poets. And so I started writing little parables and little stories and little narrative-y kind of things, um, and I did that for about 10 years without doing anything else and published my first two chapbooks and a full-length book in that period. And then it struck me, well, if I'm writing prose but it's little, maybe I can write prose that's bigger. And um, I shifted over into fiction for a while um, after taking about two years struggling with the idea that I had to give people names. So. Um, to get from he and she to you know Susan and Terry <laughs> was a bigger struggle than you'll ever imagine. It's silly, no, it's silly because you know a lot of times when we choose things in writing, uh, we're choosing our own limits. We're choosing ways to limit ourselves. So I worked really strongly with this crazy limit I had about I can't give anyone a name. When I started giving, you know, when it was Susan, then she had more possibilities of things that could happen in the world. And I wrote stories for a while, for like a decade and novels because when I wrote stories and an agent came to me you know, said, you have to write a novel. So I did and I wrote two and they, you know, they got published so that was fine. Um, but by the time um, about 10 years passed, um, I hadn't completely abandoned poetry ever but I was writing far less of it. Um, and I started feeling an urge to go back to poetry and even when I was writing the fiction I was also writing poetry because this book of mine called Japan which is my most extreme experiment in writing non-narrative poetry because it's really sound poetry. 
Um, and also I have one-year-old twins, so it's really hard to write poetry when you have one-year-old twins crawling around. So writing in a non-narrative, kind of abstract, um, imagistic fashion was the only thing I could imagine doing at that point. Um, so I didn't leave poetry completely, but when I came back to poetry, um, prose poems seemed like the wrong thing for me to do. It seemed the time in my life to think about lineation and line and sound more and how sound and line are connected. So the next four or five or six books had very few prose poems in them, if any. Um, and then because, um, so then during the book without my, um, I was, my husband and I were separating after like a thousand years of being married. And they were very, my poems were like really narrow and um, fragile, I think. And then a nice different thing happened um, after that and um, I felt way more exuberant and expansive and happy and that led me to exploring being big in a poem again to thinking, you know, how can I make a larger gesture and not be quite so pinched um, and determined before I wrote something. And so that led me to write these really long sentence poems that, um, again, then became prose poems, which surprised me, you know. But obviously if you think about it, if you write in a long sentence, what's going to happen? It's going to start looking like prose. So it shouldn't have surprised me, but it did. Um, so now I'm doing kind of both. I'm writing prose poems and not prose poems. I'm you know, quite satisfied with doing both. And, um, it's working out well. <laughs> and you know, life, you know, it's a long, it's a long career if you're really going to stay with writing. And I think the trick always is to find what, you know, what pleases you and what engages you. Because it's it's bad to not feel engaged with your own work or to feel that you're suddenly writing parodies of your work in a way. And some poets can their whole lives do one thing and be perfectly happy. Like if you look at Charles Simic, he essentially writes the same poem forever. And he's not unhappy and the world's very happy with him. So um, it's not a problem if it's not a problem for you. But myself, um, to engage myself in writing, I think I need to think of a new project now and then and um, feel an energy that that project gives me. And so I've switched a lot back and forth through the years. And I even played a little with the, um, with the form of a play because a few of my prose poems in one of my books are little dialogues that are like plays, but there's not a, they're not characters, there's just two voices. I did that for a while in, in one of my books. Um, so I think I've tried just about everything um, in terms of writing that, that one might, that I can possibly imagine doing, you know, because the other limit to your writing is you can only write what you can imagine. You know, someone else, you know, will say, well, why don't you write a nice poem about, you know, something, you can't do that. You can't write on command or demand. Um, or because someone has a good idea for you that doesn't work. Um, but, you know, within the limits of what interests you and where you feel, you know, um, psychically and um, you know, creationally, you can go. You know, you try. And that's what I, that's what I basically done. Yeah. What do you feel are the benefits of writing poetry over like a short story or a novel? Or there are there are no benefits. <laughs> <laughs> the nice thing about writing poetry is that no one no one's going to tell you what to do because no one really cares if, if anyone writes poetry. <laughs> so it's absolute freedom in writing poetry. I think. Um, you know, you don't have an agent saying to you, um, oh, that character of the gangster, you know, you're a girl, I don't know why you're writing about a, a male gangster or something like that. No one, no one bothers you in that way because there's not money to be made from writing poetry, so there's no intercession um, by people who have your interests in mind, you know, who are trying to think commercially. Like, one of my novels is about a really bad thing that one little boy does accidentally to another little boy that loses his life. 
And when I sent it to a new agent, because I was trying to change agents, the agent was all excited and said, oh, did that really happen to you? That's wonderful. We can do it as a memoir. And, you know, everyone would be so excited. You know, so imagine if that was wonderful, that my son had accidentally killed the neighbor boy. You know, that wasn't wonderful. But um, that doesn't happen in poetry, you know? He says, oh, I'm so glad that you're writing about sorrow, and can you write about sorrow 10% more? No one cares. Um, so that's a nice thing about poetry, is that you have the freedom to do what you wish, and I, I enjoy that. Yes? Do you have poems you don't share with other people? No, I don't. Either um, either my poem makes it or it's dead, and I don't. <laughs> if it's dead, I won't even share it with myself anymore. <laughs> Mainly, my poems survive at this point, you know. And um, I can almost, you know, almost. I mean, I have some poems that aren't as good as others that I tend not to read at readings, but they will be in the manuscript. They'll be in the book. Um, but it's kind of like, you know, on a, on a basketball team, you know, the, there's the five guys who start, and then there's the bench. So, <laughs> some of your poems end up kind of like the bench. And they're, not, they're not so bad, you, you can't have them on the team, but they're not the ones, they're not the ones that you read at readings. <laughs> but they're okay, you know, they're okay. They're less And they're, they're not going to get better, and even if you worked on them more, they're going to get better. Um, they're just what they are, and that's okay. So, um, you know, part of writing for a long time is knowing basically you're okay and that what you're doing is all right. <laughs> yes? Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit um, about the duration of the book and if you see any relation of that to maybe the way you write poems. I found it really interesting how you seem to sometimes put yourself under these kind of procedural mm -hmm. um, methods or even like constraint-based methods such as mm -hmm. a book that will begin with without without right, without with every line but at the same time uh it seems like a lot of these procedures or even projects that that come about uh come from your life and what's happening in your life so well, it's that's the interesting kind of it is interesting knowledge. so people have moves and you need to find ways to write in your various moods so let's say that you know you have this really long relationship that suddenly changes a lot. How, what do you you know what do you do when you're writing about that? You know, so my my idea with that was I find I I know I was going to write poems that had a smaller um, emotional scope for a while and that were dimensionally more narrow. Um, but if I have a procedure for that to work through, you know, then I also know that tomorrow when I want to write a poem, I know how I'm going to do it. You know, yeah. so. If you have a procedure, or even if you know if you're going to, you're going to use quotes, that's even a procedure. Um, there's there's a way to start on Tuesday, um, picking up from the last time without having a huge um, debate or tension in yourself about what am I doing next. You know what you're doing next, um, and so for a while that suffices. But at least for me, I always know, um, and often you get better at it. So the other thing I notice in my books is that um, since they're usually pretty chronologically. Um, placed in a book, that my early ones aren't as good as my later ones. Like, I can see myself learning to write that way. Um, you know, but the, the ones that aren't as good aren't terrible. They're good. They're good, but they get better, or they get more complicated. Um, so, at some point, though, you start feeling like, well, I've done this enough, you know, and I don't know why I feel that way. You know, my, it isn't always that your mood changes or some big thing happens in your life. It's just that okay, I've done 61 of these, and I'm, I think I'm kind of done playing with this, and then you try something else. Um, so I think kind of an emotion maybe leads me to a project, but leaving the project doesn't necessarily have to do with my life. It has to do with the feeling that I've 
you know, I've tried this, it's worked to this degree, and now I'm ready to try something else. And then sometimes, I'm a spurty writer, so sometimes I'm not writing. So if I were to, you know, sometimes your writing teachers say write every day. You know, but if I had to do that, I'd like jump out a window or something on the days I didn't want to. Um, so sometimes I just leave it alone until the next idea comes along, and then I'm ready again to, to start. So, you know, it's, it's double. There's like the like the vocational part of it that has to do with form, and there's also your own um, feelings of, you know, being ready or not ready to either start or continue something. One more question or question. two questions? Yeah. Sorry. Was there any um, like intended theme that you had in mind when you were choosing the poems to present for today? Not really. I just um, glanced at the books and thought what best represents the work at that time. You know, I, mean, I read, you know, more. I read poems I like more than poems I didn't. Of course, <laughs> I read poems that I currently like. Um, and it's hard. It's not hard to like the poems. Or, like usually, you know, your favorite your favorite babies are the ones you just had. Um, so in my new manuscript, I could read most anything. Um, but looking back, it's harder to find something I really want to read. So my poem about my daughter from my early work. Um, that's one of the few of those prose poems that I could I would read again out loud to, to you. <laughs> um, so it's choosing. You know, it's kind of again feeling satisfaction yourself with what you're you're choosing for that night and. Um, and trying, of course, to read poems that you know the audience might, you know, might by a chance like you hope, <laughs> in some way or another. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Is there one? There's someone before? No. Okay. So that's it. Okay. So thank you very much.